afternoon, we are delighted to hear from Calvin Reed. Calvin was instrumental in organizing the reading room. Uh, many of the books are ones he lent from his personal library, including the um, list he gave me to buy. Um, and also, uh, Jody Culkin, Calvin's wife, is in the show with a wonderful video. Uh, so everybody, I hope, has seen it. Uh, 1975, a prophetic. <laughs> yes, fine. Um, uh, Calvin is a senior news editor at Publishers Weekly, an editor of Publishers Weekly's Comics World, and co-host of More to Come, the PW Comics World podcast. He oversees PW's annual African-American issue, and in 2006, he was awarded the Bob Clampett Humanitarian Award by Comic-Con International in San Diego, which is a very big deal. Um, Calvin has a BFA um, uh, in art education from Howard University and an MFA in printmaking from Virginia Commonwealth. Please welcome Calvin Reed. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you to the museum, uh, to Mr. Lipman. Um, and thank you especially to Kathy Gontaroff, uh, who put this show together. Uh, I, I thank you for all the accolades. I certainly was a help. Uh, Kathy took um, her conversations with me to a whole different level of accomplishments. It's really a wonderful show um, uh, to show how this great category of comics uh, this uh, arguably, um, you know, oh-so-American uh, um, uh, medium, uh, you know, really is everywhere. Uh, it's pervasive in the culture. It's certainly pervasive in the art culture. Um, uh, artists have been moving through and using and been influenced by comics in many kind of in many different ways for many years. Uh, and this show is just a, a really tremendous example of what's going on now. And, uh, and, I, and it, there's, it's nothing more enjoyable to walk into that reading room and see people, uh, you know, pouring over the books that are there. So, um, uh, so, but, uh, this is what I'm gonna do. First, um, let's see here. Uh, here we go. We'll start. Who, who is this dude? <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, uh, I, I I'm an expert. Uh, so I'm told, um, and I guess I am. Uh, uh, but one of the things I want to talk about before we get started uh, is just the nature of what I do and how I've come to now, and who is this dude that's supposedly teaching you about something about comics? Also, uh, like I got a lot of slides here, and I got a lot of bullet points, uh, and um, so you don't have to wait. If you got a question. Let's let's talk it out. Let's make it a conversation. I don't want this thing to get uh, too boring. As anyone who's been around me knows, I can talk about comics, you know, for a long time. And I'm more, I'd be more than happy. To, I'm better at answering questions, but you know, I can I can talk if you let me, or you can ask me questions and slow me down a little bit. And I think maybe it'll be better for everybody. But we're going to start off me talking about really what I am. Uh, and if you really want to know the truth, I'm like, I'm like your, I'm, I'm like your ultimate comics fan that somebody sort of gave the keys to the mansion, you know. I, I, you know, I, I started out as in my biography, I, I really came to New York City in the early 1980s to be an artist. Um, but like many artists, you know, you do, you have to do a lot of things. 
uh, and my background was also in journalism to some degree. Uh, and, uh, and the book publishing industry where I ended up in New York, um, in terms of was, is a job, but, uh, you know, writing about the book industry and, and in particular writing for, writing about it for Publishers Weekly, you know, it's, it's a very interesting, um, uh, challenge, uh, platform calling. Uh, if you love books, there's not much better place to work. Uh, Publishers Weekly is was founded in the 19th century. It is the uh, trade news journal of the book publishing industry. So what we do, it's really a business magazine, but we certainly also report based on literary values too. So we cover everything from lawsuits to copyright infringement to bestsellers. We do reviews. We do author interviews. We we cover digital publishing. We cover how publishing has been transformed over the last 10 to 15 years by self-publishing and by technology. Uh, how uh, the power of publishing actually has somewhat shifted away from the big New York trade book houses. The rise of small publishers and within this big mix of topics and trends in business and publishing, I was lucky to arrive at Publishers Weekly uh, in the mid-1980s, so I've been there for a long time, uh, uh, as really a guy kind of looking for a job. I was in New York. I was uh, doing a variety of things. I was making prints as an artist. I was also doing original drawings. Um, but uh, uh, as they called book publishing for many years uh, the accidental profession, um, because you find so many people in publishing that didn't really intend to, to go there both on my side as a journalist and on the actual publishing house side uh, in New York City where the big, famous trade book houses that, you know, you, whose names you may be familiar with, the Random Houses, HarperCollins, Macmillan. Uh, so we cover, that's our beat, but we cover the entire industry from, from the smallest house to the biggest house, from the uh, self-publishers to uh, electronic publishing. Uh, and I arrived at a time uh, when Publishers Weekly was completely uninterested in comics um, and when actually an incredible amount of change was going on uh, in the comics publishing world. So that's my introduction, sort of. And I'm going to move through slides. i got a lot of slides. We're going to try and move through them. And this is just to sort of give you something to look at so you don't just have to listen to me talk. But... <laughs> One of the things I am going to do, I am going to show you some of my work. I'm not going to go into it a whole lot because I'm sort of in and out, you know, these days now. Um, uh, as they say, as happens to many artists in New York sometimes, um, you know, your job can eat your life. But it's, I've got a really great job, and that's kind of part of it. So, so for many years, I was able to do both. Right now, I'm sort of more reporter than artist, but, you know, I'll always be an artist. But this is some of my work. This is a large drawing. It's really a history drawing. Uh, I think I did this in the early 2000s. I can't remember. But it's a history drawing. It's probably about 30 by 40 inches. Um, and actually, I mean, the first time I met Kathy was when she was at Just Above Midtown, downtown. Uh, one of the uh, great alternative spaces uh, in New York City back in the day. And, um, uh, yeah, and then I... I knew a number of people there, and that, that was my early on uh, introduction to Kathy. But this is, this is an example of my drawing. 
And I kind of layer a variety of perceptions. If there's a metaphor to it, it's generally kind of about how you think about um, how we perceive uh, reality, how we perceive information. Uh, this particular drawing is constructed from uh, a number of um, instances based on a variety of historical circumstances that I found interesting. Uh, the, the content is more important to me as an artist to kind of construct an image uh, that will draw you in, uh, that will force you to contemplate it. And this is, uh, you know, and, and I think if you look closely, what you'll see is how comics have, have always affected me and have always affected my work. I pull the tropes, uh, the visual tropes from comics, uh, everything from, um, from word balloons uh, to, you know, crisp, linear graphics to arrows of varying kinds to, to direct and misdirect your attention. Uh, so this is just to give you a kind of a, a sense of some of the things that I, I do when I do drawing. All right, moving on. Comics. Um, the first, what I'm going to talk about now really is my own involvement. And, and, and what I'm trying to do uh, is really to, to not have this be such a dry lecture, which I'm not really that good at anyway, but trying to give you a sense of how comics figured in my life and how they kind of surfaced and resurfaced over decades uh, until I actually ended up in a place where uh, comics were at least a significant part of my profession and have become even more so over time. So this is the, this is the, these are just the comics the beginnings of the comics that really caught my attention. When I was a kid, I grew up in the 1960s. Uh, and of course, as almost probably everyone here and almost every American, I mean, Superman is the first comic book. Now, this was not, I was not alive when this was first published, but this is the first issue of Superman, uh, and, um, 1938. Uh. This is a book that was published actually last year, and is what this is is a compilation of Superman over the years, kind of the best of the stories, to celebrate his 80th anniversary, which I think was last year. And they've done the same thing, uh, DC Comics, which publishes him, did the same thing for Batman. So he launched, Batman launched, uh, I think it was a year later, in Detective Comics, which is an, was an anthology magazine that's still published to this day. Uh, and in fact, I think this year at, in San Diego at Comic-Con, there's going to be a big celebration around Batman. Uh, but you know, these are two of the most iconic characters in comics pop culture. The third, well, actually the third really should be, I'm going to come back to this, the third really should be Wonder Woman, because these are the three pillars of DC Comics. And this is just one of the early, uh, um, Wonder Woman illustrations, uh, done under William Marston, the, uh, interesting guy who, created Wonder Woman, and this is a more recent version uh, of her origin by Jill Thompson, and of course, uh, we had to include an image of Gail Godot, who actually has kind of uh, given the character new meaning for a new generation. But I'm going to back up quickly, uh, just to explain why these other images are here. My slides are just not <laughs> well organized. Will Eisner, of course... It comes from the same generation, and Will Eisner, uh, for those of you who may not know, he's probably one of the most uh, innovative uh, characters in uh, American comics. Uh, he started making comics in this same period, the 1930s. The spirit uh, 
you know, was the spirit is sort of a catalog of American comics innovation. If I'm not mistaken, started in the 1930s, uh, went right through up until the 1970s or 80s. There have been various recreation of the characters, the character, but really uh, Eisner's work on the spirit, and it started as a newspaper. Uh, a comic strip before it was transformed into books. Really, you can go through there and you can see uh, he, everything he did was innovative in terms of recreating and thinking how characters work with the kind of characters that he used. And you, you'll hear more about him later because in the 1970s, he published a book called uh, A Contract with God, and, which was a collection of short stories, but it was one of the, or arguably, one of the, the first comics really published that was aimed at the book world. And uh, and I'm saying that because really this discussion that I'm having now is very much going to be about comics in the book trade. Um, as I and, and if you if you lose track of my narrative, feel free to ask a question. But I'm gonna I'm gonna circle around back and forth to this topic over and over again. Because American comics uh, were one thing, uh, they have traditionally been a, a part of the magazine business. Uh, the comic books that we all grew up with, certainly that I grew up with, they were periodicals. They were monthlies. Um, uh, that's the way the business started out. Uh, in many ways, it has not changed very much. Uh, but in fact, it has. The introduction of the book world has changed everything about comics in our days and times now. The book world operates on a different kind of um, business level and on a different level of uh, distribution and um, connection with audiences. The book world just has a vastly larger audience of readers. Uh, American comics, really for most of its uh, existence, um, well, I'll put it this way. American comics of the last 40 or 50 years um, have been so focused away from the book trade. They, uh, many of you could know about comic shops, uh, direct market stores. Um, I'm going to get to this a little later because uh, the comics, the conventional comics industry, and you know, I meant to ask you this before I got started, and I'm, I'm talking, I'm rolling down a hill, but I'm curious. I mean, um, I'm curious, who reads comics in here? Who, how many are, are comics fans? Uh, how many of you used to read comics? Maybe read um, read newspaper comic strips. Okay. Uh, how many people have read really graphic novels, book format comics? Okay, just to get a sense of who's out here. Um, I'm just a random question. Who knows who Drawn and Quarterly is? Anybody know? Okay, you guys know. You're not right. But, you know, you're, you better know. <laughs> um, okay, Drawn and Quarterly is a Canadian publishing house. Uh, they publish book format comics. They're all their artists are all, they publish people like, um, Chris, oh no, they used to publish Chris Ware. I'm, I'm putting the wrong, I'm mixing up. But they do, they publish uh, basically a list of literary comics, award-winning comics, uh, and they have for, for many years. So that that's just a taste of where comics have gone. From uh, when I grew up to reading uh, monthly periodical comic books, that, and this is in the 1960s, uh, going to a newsstand, uh, when I think I seem to remember being about 10 cents at first, for the, the bulk of my childhood, I think they were about a quarter, um, but things started changing in the 1970s. So 
Now, I put these comments up because I basically wanted to uh, illustrate um, just a wider range of publishing and a wider issue of diversity in comics. Uh, that is a huge issue right now throughout the business as fandom changes. But even in the 1940s, in the all-Negro comics published by um, a guy by the name of Orrin Evans, uh, one of the first sort of nationally produced and published uh, comic book for black audiences. And all of the stories, uh, and I think as I understand, all the writers and artists were African Americans in this issue, in, uh, in these issues, and they were first started published in the 1940s. And Jackie Orms, who was the first um, uh, a black woman to be a syndicated uh, cartoonist, and ah, this is from the 1930s, if I'm not mistaken, in the in the Pittsburgh Courier, the uh, the black newspaper chain of the time, and um, she did a strip called Torchy Brown that was. It, you know, the, the character changed over time. Uh, at first, uh, Torchy was a young girl from Mississippi who moved to Harlem. Later on, uh, she was sort of a, a Harlem nurse adventuress who moved around the country. So that was just to, just to introduce some, that, that, you know, how broad a range comics were and how they affect every part of the American, uh, fan base. So we're gonna get forward. The scene we saw here. All right, now these are the comics that, you know, affected me as a kid. Uh, I started out with DC and Batman, and we're talking about in the 1960s, but somewhere in the mid-1960s, uh, I discovered Marvel Comics uh, and Jack Kirby. Uh, as you can see, I'm wearing uh, a T-shirt from the Jack Kirby Museum. And, you know, there's, there's, uh, th there's only one way to describe Jack Kirby, and that is... He's the king of comics. He's probably the greatest superhero uh, artist, writer, creator uh, the country has ever produced. And that's saying a lot. Um, you don't have to take my word for it. Go online. Uh, there's plenty of people that will are willing to talk to you about it. But uh, his tenure at Marvel Comics, uh, later on at DC Comics, uh, but really uh, with with uh, Jack Kirby, you can go back even further. I mean, I, I, he essentially, he didn't invent the superhero, but he probably took it to its to, the, to its greatest heights. Um, he, I, if I'm not mistaken, he essentially invented the romance genre. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. But one of the hallmarks of Kirby's uh, style was incredibly dynamic characters. Um, and the Fantastic Four, a modestly called the world's greatest comic magazine, uh, but you know what? There's not too many people that would really argue with that. And here's more of Jack Kirby's. He's, he, most of the characters in the Marvel Universe that, uh, you see in these blockbuster movies, uh, Kirby had something to do with. He was either the creator or the co-creator. Um, Spider-Man, he actually drew the first, uh, issue of Spider-Man, but Spider-Man actually became known for another iconic character in the Marvel, um, uh, uh in the Marvel, uh, Marvel artists. Uh, um, stable, and that's Steve Ditko, who also uh, passed away uh, last year. Um, uh, Ditko also an incredibly dynamic style, incredibly creative style. Um, uh, but then these are these are some these are just some heroes, uh, some covers here of really important books. Um, Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, which kind of re reinvented the character for a new age of. Heroes, in some ways, I guess many people point to this particular book uh, as 
a kind of a seminal point in changing how comics were seen. I mean, Frank Miller's Batman turned comics really into, towards a dark kind of vision of essentially a way to make comics. The comics that followed Frank Miller's really were superhero comics for adults. Um, uh, and Alan Moore's Watchman, which you may have also heard of, uh, can also be uh, put into that bag. And Alan, Alan, Alan Moore, also the British author, who also is also uh, uh, credited with creating comics of a literary, in fact, creating superhero comics uh, of um, with a, a, a with literary level of quality, also sort of changed everything that came behind it. All right, so we're gonna we're, we're rolling along here. I'm going to see. It. Any questions? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, I, I have nothing about this. So okay, I good. Ask, when you talk about a literary level of comics, yes. high quality, the question is, and we're talking about Jack Kirby being a writer and an artist. Yes. So what comes first, the writing and then the art, or the art and then the writing? Okay, that's a great, that's an excellent question. So uh, it depends. It depends. Okay. Um, uh, uh, well, I'm going to deal with the which with just the functionality of the of the question, and we'll hit some. What comes first? Uh, it depends. Uh, what I'm showing here uh, in many of these comics. This is the immersion. The, I mean, comics uh, as started in this country is a commercial business. Uh, they were the the people that did them. Even Jack Kirby, who we look back and admire now for the for these works. Many of them actually did not consider themselves to be artists. They were, you know, they may have loved what they did. They may have been extremely good at what they did. But it was a different world, and and, the, and comics were seen primarily as entertainment. Uh, so the works that you see here were done in many ways on an assembly line. And American commercial comics are produced in a certain kind of way. At, at, at big publishers like Marvel and DC Comics, who are considered kind of the avatars of American commercial comic book publishing. You, there is an assembly line approach. There is a pencil. There is an inker. There is a writer. Uh, and there's usually a letter in many cases. Now this is changing a little bit, but the classic American comic book that you, that we were talking about earlier, and when we get to Zap Comics, the, everything changes. Uh, and even Watchmen and these works, I mean, and one of the things I'm not doing, I'm not, for instance, um, uh, let's see who's up there. Uh, uh, Klaus Jansen's up there, who I believe did the, the some of the inking and perhaps backgrounds. In commercial comic book publishing, very often there can be people who do different parts of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the, the works that I'm talking about here, and, and, and as I'm describing Jack Kirby and the like, and uh, uh, there are other creators for Batman, um, Generally, for Kirby generally penciled his words. So that meant that he penciled them all out. But it gets even more complicated when you're talking about Marvel, because Marvel had a slightly different approach to creating comics than, say, DC and other publishers. They had something called the Marvel Method. And basically, so now I have to bring in another name, Stan Lee, yeah. who passed away also very recently. Uh, the Marvel Method was a little bit different in how they did things, in that they, particularly during the period when they were really having success, 
where these comics like Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Thor, the Avengers were coming out, and they were they were receiving a lot of popular attention. They were selling really well. Uh, they were new. They were fresh. A lot of this had to do with Stan Lee. Stan Lee's method was this. He had these amazing artists like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, who have been really making comics for decades. And they would sit in their um, editorial meetings and they would kind of block out the next series of stories that they were going to uh, they were going to tell with a broad outline. The the artists, the visual artists, would actually do the entire book without dialogue, and Stan would come back based on how they talked it and worked it through. He depended on their visual storytelling to create the story. He would go back and actually fill in the dialogue based on what he had told them and how they structured it. Visually, everyone did not work that way. This was a feature of at Marvel Comics, in particular during uh, the years that they really uh, were leading their business. In many ways, some people say Marvel continues to lead the business. Typically, though, there's a writer who does a script. The script is shared with the artist. The artist works with the um, with the writer to come up with. You know, sometimes artists do thumbnails where they'll map they'll map they'll map an entire story out and and you know very sketchily, and then they'll go back and do the finished work. That's one way of doing it. On the commercial side, there still are inkers and letterers, but getting into the 1960s and the underground comics. Uh, or if you leave America and go around to the rest of the world in comics, you'll find that there's more of an, uh, an auteur-like approach. There's one creator. There's someone who writes the story, and he draws it as well. He or she draws it as well. So it changes as, uh, and what we're seeing more now in this contemporary era is more, the, the commercial side of the business is, 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 is as big, as powerful, and as influential as ever. But there's now in American comics uh, the ability to create comics that are very individual, to create comics the way that you would create a literary novel, a novel that may not be about superheroes or people flying around or even adventures, not necessarily genre fiction. Um, one of the, the key aspects of American comics, uh, particularly in over the last 50 years, is that American comics have been dominated by one genre. Now, it's a genre that we all love if we're comic book nerds. That's the superhero genre. You don't really see that in other countries around the world where comics are, are really a, a wonderful mass-based reading, uh, reading uh, platform. If you go to France and Europe, if you go to Japan in particular, which has a mammoth comics industry and produces comics for everyone. Uh, or wherever you go in the world, you don't see the strange um, constriction of the American North American comics market and its obsession with one genre. What's happened over, particularly over the last 20 years, and, and once again as I return to my theme of the book trade, as comics have broken out of the superhero genre, as a generation of young people, uh, young readers, new readers, uh, have uh, grown up with different kinds of comics and been exposed to different kind, kinds of comics, especially because of the internet. Uh, at a time uh, when librarians and te teachers grew up reading, say, Mouse by Ox Spiegelman, which I'm going to get to. Uh, if you don't know what Mouse is, Mouse is a, a memoir. 
It is the memoir uh, of Art Spiegelman and his father's and his time in a uh, uh, in a, a concentration camp uh, and his life afterwards uh, and how it affected everyone around him. And it's a great classic of the comics medium. Uh, originally, well, it was published in in stages, um, but I believe it was in the early '90s that it won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and these kinds of comics. Uh, came along at a time when uh, a generation growing up started to realize that comics can do more than just entertain. Now, literary comics are entertaining as well, but what's happening in the American comics market right now is that we're, it's really developing in ways that comics have already developed in many markets overseas. So we're seeing literary comics. We're seeing nonfiction, serious nonfiction comics. Uh, I've posted panels on comics journalism, uh, comics as a medium, you know, as a way to produce, uh, you know, a, a work of communication. Can do really anything, and I'm a bit of an evangelist for that. To uh, teaching about how comics can be more than an adventure story, though we love our adventure stories as well. But comics can do everything. Right now, we're in the midst of an of a boom in comics for kids. Uh, even though in this country comics are almost uh, always assumed to be for kids, uh, really during this period that what I'm talking about right now, with um, I seem to have lost my clicker. No, I found it. All right. Um, comics actually got away from uh, making comics for kids because so there was so much focus on this new dark vision of using comics uh, to, to turn superheroes into serious reading. Uh, very often it meant a really dark vision of how uh, how superheroes would deal with criminals in this particular day and time. In a time, the early early comics were so much about you know capturing burglars. But how do you do a serious, how do you frame a superhero in a period of, say, international terrorism? So, uh, and of mass murders, um, serial killers. And so these are the kinds of comics, or these are the ways that superhero comics have evolved in the modern era, particularly after works of, like The Dark Knight and Watchmen. Um, uh, and as we moved into the 1960s and the underground comics of people like R. Crumb, uh, of his wife, uh, Aline Kaminsky Crumb, of, um, of Tina, uh, Tina Robbins, and of other people who were making comics. We started to see in, uh, it, during the, the, during those years in the 1960s and into the 1970s, uh, a different kind of comics there as well. And, and, and this is more of what I mean when I say, uh, uh comics having a literary element to them. For them to be personal, to, the, to the, for them to not be uh, created purely with a commercial, uh, with a commercial interest, but as a way of exploring both how the form should be handled, the formal aspects of it, but also uh, the relations between human beings, and to do it with honesty and with some sense of truth, and not simply as uh, an adventure story or as a, you know as something to read for entertainment but to be entertained and hopefully enlightened in ways that art has always done. So this is, in some ways, this is the big change that uh, I see, I saw in comics in my life. We're seeing it expand now. 
and in particular to see comics expand to a whole new set of readers in the contemporary moment. And readers who are interested in perhaps more than superheroes. Uh, I like my superhero comics, but uh, uh, I also like work by R. Crumb, uh, who has put work together, he's put together a career that's, uh, that's controversial, particularly in this moment today. But he also is one of the key figures in changing how Americans think about comics uh, and changing how artists think about comics and what they can do with the form. All right. Let's move this along. <laughs> I can, I'm, I, I, I'm taking a lot more time to talk than I thought I would. This is his wife, Elaine kaminsky Crum, uh, whose short stories were also... And one of the things Elaine did was do autobiographical stories, the stories about her life with a really amazing honesty. And Crum actually gives her credit uh, for his own uh, uh, autobiographical essays. Uh, which he is much acclaimed for, but he really was influenced by his wife. Um, uh, this is Karen Berger, who is an editor, uh, was an editor at a DC imprint called Vertigo. Uh, this is important because once again, this is another step toward comics breaking out of the superhero ghetto, for want of a better way to describe it. Uh, she was an editor at this imprint at DC Comics uh, in the early 1990s, and this uh, imprint was started just to do comics at DC Comics that were not superheroes. They were actually genre comics. Alan Moore, who I mentioned earlier, was one of the first people to write for her. Some of the things that you're seeing on TV right now, um, I write about a name of Garth Ennis, who wrote a series called Preacher. Now these were, these were genre comics, but these were all across it. These were um, detective comics. These were, um, you know, it, uh, also adventure comics with noir. Uh, fantasy, um, a Neil Gaiman Sandman series also started. Yeah, I see some head shaking out there, so you know, so there, people out here know what I'm talking about. But they brought another variety, another level of quality, or certainly a level of genre, uh, uh, literary work. Um, it, it, even though they actually, uh, they were still, these were still periodical comics. They were collected in the books, and really her time at Vertigo is really seen as an introduction into the period uh, uh, that we're in now, where you can walk into a Barnes and Noble and find a, a massive collection of, of comic books, or uh, excuse me, of graphic novels. And also when I say graphic novel, um, uh, I basically mean book format. The graphic novel is a format. Uh, so is the, uh, it's just a way of physical, the physical presence of the book. Now, are there more questions? I just feel like I'm, I'm talking endlessly. I, I'm hoping that this is useful, uh, but feel free to ask more questions. Now, did I answer all of yours? Did I did it give you a sense? All right, because I'm covering a lot of ground here. I, I understand. Yes, I see a question over here. Can you speak to the evolution of costuming in comics, especially in the superhero genre? Well, there is an evolution. Um, I don't, it's not, it's interesting. I mean, uh, obviously the cape, uh, is a key kind of aspect of the superhero costume. And, you know, this, this talk that I'm giving is about a show called Beyond the Cape. So, I mean, so what we're saying in that sense also, uh, within the superhero comic, actually, the cape has sort of fallen in, you know, by the wayside, sort of, uh, 
uh, anachronistic in most superhero comics today. If you look at modern heroes, uh, for instance, and we can just go to the 1960s, uh, someone like Spider-Man, there's no cape. Uh, but, uh, but, but if you use the cape uh, as a metaphor for other kinds of things, and we are in this show here, uh, it, it's really a look at how we've moved behind that comics have to be about superheroes. And part of what I'm talking about here is how even today uh, in a North American comic market that has changed radically, that there's way, way more kinds of comics to read, uh, that comics artists can do a variety of different kinds of comics to make a living, uh, really up until I would say the 1980s or so, I mean, if you either you wanted to be a superhero comic and do comic books for Marvel and DC, maybe you could have done, uh, in the past you could do gag panels, you know, you could do uh, magazine, you know, a cartooning, um, single page, you know, single panel gags in the New Yorker, for instance, uh, but the magazine business has pretty much eliminated that now. So there really wasn't a lot of things. If you were going to do a, if you were going to be a cartoonist, you did superheroes or you didn't do much else. But that's, that's changed dramatically now. You have a huge generation of comics artists coming out. Uh, and I haven't even talked about manga and Japanese comics yet, which has also had a tremendous impact on American artists, on American comic book storytelling, and on the, and purely on the business side, because manga, uh, which is just Japanese comics, although they have certain stylistic quirks to them that make you, make Americans say, yes, that's a Japanese comic. Uh, it just, they're inherently a book form, uh, they are in Japan, and they really exploded onto the American, uh, scene in the early, well, in the late 90s and in the early 2000s. And they changed the game in American publishing across the board for, primarily for one reason, although there were a lot of reasons, and the primary reason was that the, there, in Japan, there are, there are huge numbers of comics that are designed just for girls, young women, and older women, uh, in ways that simply doesn't happen in the U.S., or didn't happen in the U.S. until manga became much more prevalent. Uh, um, in the U.S., uh, romance comics did have a certain period uh, of popularity. They also started to die out. And it actually, American comics industry basically ignored uh, young women essentially beginning in the 1960s and onward. Uh, it really was a male-oriented business in almost every way. Uh, certainly there were women artists and women professionals working on the publishing and retailing side, but it was uh, it was dominated by men and dominated uh, in the kinds of books that are published and who the market was perceived to be in all the ways you can probably figure out yourself. Uh, but we're in a new world now. And women, people of color, the LGBTQ community, come up with any other community you want to that you probably didn't see represented in the comic book uh, and probably weren't behind the scenes or acknowledged in any way. And that has changed. That's changing and it will continue to change in the future as this medium reaches more and more people 
with more and more different kinds of stories. So I wanted to get Karen Burgers up there because she was inducted into the Will Eisner Hall of Fame at San Diego last year. It's a huge honor. Uh, she, was, she, she no longer works at DC. She has another imprint at another publisher now. But her work really introduced this world that we live in today a variety of diversity in genre, of diversity in really every way you want to talk about, or, or put it this way, the aspirations for more diversity, uh, but also just that, that we are living more than ever in a world of comics for everyone. And I see I'm never going to get through these slides. So we're going to, I'm going to see if we can move fast along. Any other questions out there? Yes, and there's a question in the back. And I'll you get you too. Yes. And I got brought in as an illustrator and mm. learned that the comic artists were the ones that were really the ones with the most talented storyboards and, mm. and stuff like that. So, um, but if I, I wanted, you wanted to get back into it, how would you promote yourself? To, 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 what, to get into comics or to get into the film business? <laughs> to do your, your own comic. You have some ideas for something well, well, many do. I mean, if I get if I get to the thing, I, there's a wonderful woman, um, a Canadian woman uh, by the name of Amanda Dalawali. She had an she has a, a, a hilarious book called Woman World. Uh, she started. She's actually an animator originally, uh, and I forget who did she work for. I forget was it what, was Nickelodeon, um, but she she eventually left that job. And she was really interested in making comics, and she posted her comics on Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, and she did that for she, and she kind of developed the following on Instagram. Uh, and then a publisher that I mentioned here, uh, Drawn and Quarterly, they really loved the comics so much, and they worked with her, and she recreated her Instagram comics into a book, into this really hilarious. It's kind of a hilarious feminist satire. About a world basically where men's no longer exist. So uh, there you go. So you can make sure you pick that up. So, but yes, it's a book. It's called Woman World, and I've got you know it's way at the end, so I can't get to it. <laughs> but I will get there eventually. But I'll say this: there are more ways. To, I can't. I can't tell you everything that you can do right here, right now. But there are more ways for you as a comics artist or an aspiring comics artist or as an aspiring book author to promote yourself, to self-publish yourself, to build an audience, uh, or to find a conventional publisher than ever before. Uh, it's not easy, it's very hard, but there's an enormous amount of uh, information out there to help you. Uh, so you don't have to rely on me or what I tell you in this talk, but uh, you don't, you still need a good book, you still need to work very hard on it, uh, but uh, it's not the way it used to be. All right, so I just wanted to go through quickly some of the, the changes in the 90s. I mean, you've heard a little bit about Black Panther. This is kind of black, the Black Panther in the, in the 90s when it was written by a gentleman by the name of Christopher Priest. He kind of took it to, a, uh, to another level in terms of characterization, and really building the population of the character, a character that is very famous now because of the movie that came out very recently, but it was originally created by Jack Kirby, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, but by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee in the early 1960s, when I was like about 
11 years old, 12 years old, and I remember the first time I saw the Black Panther, and I thought it was the coolest superhero ever. Uh, this is a um, uh, this is a comic published by a company called Milestones, which was affiliated with DC, and it was a completely black-owned uh, imprint. It was really a, a they really had a partnership. It was started by a guy by the name among the guys uh, that started a guy by the name of Dwayne McDuffie, who has since passed away, who was a really talented writer. Uh, he did animation. He was a he was an idea guy. He did most of the writing, but there was a number of people around him at this company, uh, including Reginald Hudlin, um, who created uh, this whole platform of black superheroes. Uh, this is also in the this is the, well the timing here the years is is not exact, but uh, beginning in the 1980s when I got to New York and, and this is one of the things that got me thinking about how I could have an impact on comics while I was writing about the book trade at Publishers Weekly. Uh, a whole new generation of comics artists also who are who are coming out of the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, including um, a group of, of uh, uh, really two uh, Mexican-American brothers outside of Los Angeles, um, uh, the, the Hernandez brothers, Jaime and Gilbert Hernandez. They started a, a, um, a well, I think it was a monthly comic, it might have been quarterly at first, called Love and Rockets, that started out with these incredibly imaginative science fiction stories, but eventually evolved into this really... Uh, engaging uh, and absolutely literary series uh, about, uh, on the one hand, Jaime wrote about um, Mexican-American uh, and Chicana kids and punk rockers around L.A. in the 1980s, and his brother Gilbert uh, wrote these amazing stories about this mythical Central American village uh, 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 called, what, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the village, Palomar. Uh, uh, there were also uh, poetic, uh, epic that, that delved into their lives. They really were not like comics that anybody had encountered up to them. And they have really gone on to create and influence uh, the world of what was then called alternative comics. Um, and now which you would just, you would read their work and just think of it as, as naturalistic fiction. It was incredibly, uh, they're incredibly inventive. And to this day, uh, I talked a little bit about Mouse and its influence early. Um, uh, one of the other things that Art Spiegelman uh, did and his impact on, look at this, time is flying. And I didn't even get back in and I knew it was too much. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through these slides really quickly and then you can just ask me some questions. Because I talk too much. <laughs> All right. Jessica A. Well, Julie uh, 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 Doucet, which was a, who was a really important comics artist, particularly in the 1980s. Uh, uh, Ho Anderson, who did a biography of Martin Luther King in the 1980s. Kyle Baker, a black cartoonist, whose Why I Hate Saturn was really one of the early graphic novels in the 1980s. It was about kind of the bar scene in New York in the 80s. A really terrific book. Also, a wonderful uh, history of um, uh, of Nat Turner. Manga, as I said before, uh, really changed for, uh, changed American comics, uh, particularly for girls. And Sailor Moon, uh, and Card Captain Sakura, uh, for girls. These were really important. Also, uh, Gegeka, which is very different from the other kind of manga there. And it's basically, 
literary Japanese comics. Uh, comics that really were very different from the commercial brand. In this day and time, we're seeing just the expansion of comics, including superhero comics, into other areas and to a widely more diverse set of characters. This is uh, Miss Marvel, uh, which was recreated by writer G. Willow Wilson. And, uh, right, the editor at Marvel's, uh, Sina, you know, I'm banging her name, so I'm not gonna do it. But, uh, basically a Muslim American superhero. Uh, you know, a, a new Iron Man, actually Iron Heart, a new character, uh, a young black woman, an, an MIT student who creates her own Iron Man suit. Lumberjanes, uh, another, it's a wide book for the LGBTQ committee. Comics for Everyone, Hot Comb, which is just published this year, uh, by a young black woman, uh, who's published by Dwan and Quarter. This is a hilarious look at a self-involved, alcoholic, uh, um, uh, lesbian writer who thinks, uh, she is a genius and really has complete disdain for everyone around her. Uh, it's hilarious. Uh, I could go on and on, but you know what? It's, I knew this was happening. I talked too much. I'm just going to go through these quickly. Uh, one of the things I didn't get to talk about is the growth of comics conventions and how they've also, as a platform for talking about comics and engaging with fans. So this is just a look at, say, San Diego, uh, which gets 130,000 people across four days. But you know what? Are there any questions? I talked too much. <laughs> we can keep going. These are some, I wanted to end with, with, a, with a, many of the artists today. This is on the left, Damian Duffy, and on his right, um, uh, John Jennings. Uh, they worked together as a team. The most recent book they did was an adaptation of Octavia Butler's uh, science fiction classic, Kindred. This is them winning an Eisner Award at last, was it last year's? Uh, this is uh, last year's uh, Comic-Con. Uh, Tilly Walden and Linares, the Argentinian cartoonist. Uh, Tilly Walden, fabulous young cartoonist, um, who, uh, was, uh, well, she's, she's got so many books. Google her. <laughs> uh, this, uh, Emil Ferris, whose book, My Favorite Thing is Monsters, is just a masterpiece. And uh, this is her winning in, and uh, in Eisner also. This, here's the book I was talking about. Woman World. Hilarious. And really, uh, she really moved into comics in a really unusual fashion. Uh, Here's, here's New York Comic Con. These are the mega cons. Uh, you know, New York Comic Con sells 200,000 tickets. Uh, this is Marjorie Liu who has written a wonderful book, a fantasy book called, uh, Monstrous. Uh, I think they won, what, five Eisners at last year's? Uh, now, the Comics Art Festival. These are smaller publishing focus shows. Yes. <laughs> are there any more questions before you all, before they throw us out of here? <laughs> Yes, question. How did you feel to see the exhibition here coming alive? And what were some surprises or cool stuff that came up on you? Well, what, you know what? The, the, the exhibition here is fabulous, as I said before. I, what surprised me were, and there's some of the artists as I suggested, I had seen other, I was familiar with their work in some ways and didn't know that they had comics. For instance, like Kerry James Marshall. I actually didn't know about those works at all, and I loved that work. Uh, um, uh, other artists, I, I knew they did some things that I didn't necessarily, I hadn't seen, um, uh, recent work. Uh, I was really happy to see Chris Ware, 
um, you know, because I've interviewed him many times, uh, and, and he, he told me he wasn't sure if he had anything that would go on the show, and I hadn't seen him. So I was really excited to see Chris Ware, because, I mean, Chris Ware really is the epitome of what I'm talking about, making literary comics. His comics are absolutely architectonically put together. They're put together with a mind to the form, how he can change the form, how he can innovate the form, and, and, and they're put together in a way that also... Uh, in a traditional manner, he wants to tell a story. He wants to create a book that will touch you emotionally. But he's always out trying to, to, to do something that really redefines what a comic can be. So these were the kinds of things that I was, was happy to see and to see other kinds of comics, uh, to see what I didn't anticipate being in the show. More questions? Yes, you. Please. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how They have changed. Uh, sure. Uh, they have changed, but they're, you know, uh, okay. For instance, Art Spiegelman. Uh, Art Spiegelman draws, but you know what he does? He draws in a traditional way, and he draws, he has a table, and he, but he also re he scans his work, you know, into a computer, and then he spits it out again, and he works on it in other ways. Um, uh, the coloring of most commercial comics today are, is handled by cute computers. Uh, lettering very often is digitized now. Uh, I mean, the computers have done in comics pretty much what they've done everywhere else. They, they can kind of replace tedious, laborious stuff and you can punch things out really quick. Uh, that said, most artists, some artists draw their comics entirely on, uh, uh, what's, what, what are the panels? What are the, Right, when well, wake up tablets, wake up tablets, if it's a t- yes, and, also and of course web comics, you know, exist entirely online. So yes. Well, there's been a lot of comic graphic novels that have moved into live action TV and movie now. Yes. Well, that's that's certainly the the adaptations of you know, I mean, so many of the, the works that I've shown up here that you've seen up here have been turned into both feature films. And that's, and we're in an interesting moment now. I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to talk about, and I really haven't, is, is retail, how comics are sold. I mean, that's a really important part about, I mean, comics started as a really commercial genre. And business decisions, you know, decided really how they looked in the, in the kind of stories that, that were told. Now we're in another era for comics where how comics are told can be done in different kinds of ways. Um, uh, um, movies have, uh, have actually extended the life of superheroes in many ways. Uh, you, you could make the case that the, that the genre is as about as exposed as it can be in the print form. Uh, many comics retailers are a little worried now. People want superhero stories, but they want them as movies. Maybe a little bit more than they want them as a print on paper. And that's a worry for the retail side going forward. But yeah, um, we're living right now in a time where certainly superhero movies seem to really have another life. Uh, a superhero comics have another life in the movies. Yes, sir. Would you say, though, that uh, the print form of comics really gives itself to movies because it's almost like on most movies that do storyboard format, you know, like 300 was almost a you know, shot or shot yeah. pull from, from the graphic novel. It's, it's like there's a little layout of almost shot 
Walking Dead, you know, the whole thing is. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, so, and, and, yeah. Print is just part of it. It's almost like you get it in print and then it can evolve. Well, and I've been told by, for instance, for instance uh, agents and, uh, and producers who work in Hollywood that it's, you know, so one thing that they can put in front of a studio executive and they, they, they'll get it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a movie on paper. And since uh, TV is, you know, become such a storytelling device because it's almost like two hours and then not time to tell a story anymore. Yes. So you get like uh, Walking Dead, Game of Thrones. Sure. All a preacher, all these ones that are, you know, you can develop characters, and if you show them in a, in a graphic novel or a series of graphic novels, you see a character evolve from point A to Without a doubt. I mean, and actually the streaming TV services, they've really created a new world, really, for all kinds of content. Because really now, I mean, you can really create, you know, uh, a video or a, a, essentially a movie, uh, an episode, episodic movie with the same depth, nuance of a novel. You know, so you're absolutely right. That certainly has had a lot to do with uh, the rise of comic books as adaptation material uh, for films. Absolutely. More questions? Would you, yeah, okay. Would you, um, I, I think there's a collection of, of your recommended titles in the library. Are, would you make that list available? Uh, is there a list of, t- I mean, right. there, there is, <laughs> um, I mean, I have a list that I, you know, I could just, I could just email you. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, there's so much, I mean, it depends on your taste. I mean, what do you, you know, that's the thing. There's a lot of, you know what the best thing to do, because I, one thing I've neglected to talk about, really, because I wanted to talk about, there's really a mix of, of, of things that have transformed and created this moment, and I've touched on some of them, and I haven't talked about librarians, and that's really key. Librarians have been incredibly powerful in changing the perception of American comics. In the, into opening up uh, this category to all kinds of stuff. And we're seeing it even more today. Um, I just went to the American Library Association, uh, Library Association annual meeting in D.C., and there's even more organizing around comics and graphic novels uh, because there's huge demand, circulation goes through the roof, and many of these librarians are of a generation where they've read these books. They came through those years. They know that comics... Uh, that there's great literature that will connect with people out there. So go to your library. Go to, I would say, ask a librarian or go online. Uh, there are groups now. There's a group in the ALA called the Graphic Novel uh, and Comics Roundtable. And that's all they're doing is organizing around how graphic novels are collected and circulated in libraries. So you can find a reading list online for what you should read. Um, and there's there's plenty. There's lots to read. Yes? Um, based on your background as a journalist and an artist, um, in today's world, what recommendation do you give to a young person who is graduating from high school, working in colleges in New York, and very diverse areas of interest where they might want to combine writing with um, Comics, maybe one of their dreams to work for Marvel. Uh-huh. Um, what kind of academic path should they be looking mm-hmm. at for our schools? Is this person like close to you? <laughs> 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 I'm
Yeah, okay, all right. Just, yeah, just curious if you're, you're asking for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, I'm not sure you want to know uh, I mean there are, there is a yes I mean you, you want to know is there information I mean I I've looked into internships with Marvel it's you have to be 18 you have to be in college and you know I'm there yet yes sir. Um, as far as just kind of you know, what we can I mean at least in the writing aspect be able to find a publisher and an artist to work with you I mean it's like she's looking to major in like English creative writing concentration but she loves the comics so much mm. of her, who she is, is in, in the comics. So we're looking at NYU, maybe the Gallatin School. You know, I don't know who's who's teaching. Who's got a college? Who's got a comics program? I can't remember all of. Well, I mean, most of them are more for for artists. My wife is a professor, in, in addition to being, and and actually created a comics class. It, at at BMCC. Which I don't teach. Yes, yes, but you did write the you, you did write the curriculum. I did. Yeah. But um, I think uh, there aren't so many that are straight um, just for writing. But I think like what seems to me would be the um, Galton's great program. And I know that you're interested in comics. Um, you know, I'm actually one of the greatest, so I know that Hard people. Well, I would try to work with people as quickly as you can try and find people to work with. You know, write and try and find. I think that's the best thing. Just to try and find people to say, you know, find some artists you like to work with, and that's what I would do. I would do it in school, and I would do it, and the whole I would work. <laughs> you know, I would just do it everywhere you can. I mean, it's a complicated question. I mean, if you're in college, I mean, you can certainly start thinking about uh, how. That you can do informal outside of school ways that you can get in connection with comics artists and learn more about the craft. Um, I would say the best way to at least begin learning about comics, obviously, is to read as many comics as possible. And also look at the new, the, there, there's so many more ways to introduce yourself to the world, uh, through online comics, for instance, through web comics especially. Um, uh, uh, check out places like the Center for Cartoon Studies. And once again, these are comics-intensive courses. They're not liberal arts courses, so you, you may want to think twice about that. SBA, of course, has one of the most famous comics courses in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there are other, you know, what, the Savannah, Co- Savannah College of Arts has a degree program in comics. And there are others, too. Their, their names are escaping me right now. Yes, there is. Yes. Um, but you know, you know, you can you can start now. You, there's ways you can do it uh, and and work on your chops uh, as a writer, I suppose, not as necessarily as an artist or both. Right. I, I mean, I draw from a hobby. I, yeah. I don't think I do very much. Right. Right. She's a strong writer. Yeah. All right. Well, um, you know, work on it. <laughs> but you know, I would say even go online because I tell you, there is so much information on time online. So we're getting down to the wire here. I guess we're past the wire. But I, I'll, so I'll end this, you know, because I wanted to show off, you know, the, a bunch of, of comics arts festivals. And by that, to, to differentiate them from Comic Cons, which are giant pop culture conventions with comics usually at the heart. But, but one of the things I also cover are these comics art festivals, the cast. And they're about books. They're about publishing, because that's really what I'm about. And, uh, these are some, these are some people, uh, 
This is Comics Out of Brooklyn in New York, which is a wonderful indie show. And I'm going to end on this slide, which was taken at the ALA annual meeting. And this is our panel on diversity. These are all like new publishers, except for the woman up there who writes for me. That's Bridget Alveson. She's a fabulous comics journalist. But it's Bill Campbell from Rosarium Publishing. Um, uh, C. Spike Trotman, a, a, a fascinating cartoonist, now publisher who has her own publishing house called uh, Iron Circus. Uh, books. Uh, I forget Theory's last name, but he's a publisher for Gallimard, the great French publisher. Uh, there's a huge explosion of licensed European graphic novels uh, finding an audience in the U.S. today, and he was on this panel talking about how the French comics market is being affected by this. Uh, Tom Kaczynski, who publishes, uh, is a publisher and a cartoonist himself of a house called Uncivilized Books. They do fabulous books. And Peggy Burns, uh, who Grew up at DC as a PR person, left and moved to Canada, and ended up running Drawn and Quarterly, uh, really one of the most distinguished graphic novel publishers in uh, North America. So this is, I just wanted to end on this. This is like the face of, of comics publishing going, uh, going forward. And I think it kind of looks like the rest of the world, don't you think? So look, that's my talk. <laughs> I hope I was useful. Uh, I can talk about this stuff for the cows from home. So thank you so much uh, for having me. <laughs>